The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hey! There was gold in that mountains. How long would it have been there? Millions and millions of years, wouldn't it? What's our hurry? A couple of days more or less ain't gonna make any difference. Remember what you said? Back in Tampico about having to pack that old man on our backs? That was when I took him for an ordinary human being, not part goat. Look at him climb, will you? Hey, what's the matter? Look. Look at the glitter. It's yellow, too, like gold. gold. Howard! 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 Come back! We found something! Hey, look! Hey, look, Clay! He's a vein of it here in this rock. Hey, look here. Look, it's all around. Oh, what else could it be? Only gold shines and glitters like that. Struck it, Kurt. Look. But the looks of things. Struck it rich. Look, it's all over here. Maybe we found a, a what do you call a, a mother load. Say how it, how it. Look, look. Here. Look at this rock. It's, it's full of gold. Veins of it. I wouldn't pay you dinner for a carload. What well, ain't gold? Pyrites. Who's gold? <laughs> oh, not the rain plenty of the real stuff hereabouts. We walked over it four or five times. The place yesterday that looked like rich diggings, but the water from Washington Sand was 11 miles away, too far. And the other places, well, there wasn't enough gold to pay us a good day's wages. Hey, next time you fellas strike it rich, holler for me, will you, before we start flashing water around? Water's precious. Sometimes it can be more precious than gold. What up? Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 6, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today, where our show is solid gold from start to finish. Have we been fools about gold, or has the gold, the rule, or the golden rule changed? Remember the golden rule, Robert? I do. He who holds all the gold makes all the rules. That's right. <laughs> well, maybe it's time to reconsider some old assumptions about gold. Do you want to lead us off? Uh, certainly, yeah. And we're, well, what better place to uh, go than to the experts? Um, our guest today who you've reached, I believe, in Washington, D.C., is Keith Wiener. And Keith Wiener is founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, a fund manager in Scottsdale, Arizona. He's a leading authority in the areas of gold, money, and credit, and has developed a unique model for trading gold and silver. He's the founder of Diamondware, which was a software company sold in Nor- to Nortel back in 2008. And finally, he is the founder of the Gold Standard Institute, USA. Keith attended university at uh, Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute and uh, earned his PhD at the non-accredited New Austrian School of Economics. He writes about gold and the dollar. He's a Forbes columnist and publishes on many leading financing gold sites. As an authority and advocate for rational monetary policy, he has appeared on financial television, The Peter Schiff Show, 
and as a speaker at Freedom Fest. He'll be in Toronto this Saturday on a panel, uh, the topic of which is Austrian Practitioners in Finance, an Outlook on Financial Matters. And it's hosted by the uh, Ludwig von Mises Institute Canada, and it's called the International Conference on Prices and Markets. Are you there, Keith? Hello, Keith. I don't think, do we have the connection yet? I think we're having a little trouble getting hold of Keith here. Just one second. In the meantime, I guess I can say why I have always enjoyed the gold standard ever since I've read Alan Greenspan's article called Gold and Economic Freedom, which was uh, published in The Objectivist. Now, I read that maybe 30 years ago, and it, it highlights step by step why the gold standard is essential to... Uh, maintain your wealth and not only that but more importantly why people are opposed to it primarily and I bet you Keith is going to get into this primarily because the welfare state relies on a paper standard not a gold standard gold standard is something that which is reality based not um, whim based now I see we have Keith on the line Keith can you hear us not yet yeah, we got him on the line in the control booth, but not here. That's no good. I got <laughs> Anyway, Keith has also uh, produced a number of videos that you can find on YouTube. One is called Irredeemable Currency, where he goes step by step through the process of defining what money is, why we've turned to a paper standard, the history of why we turned to a paper standard and abandoned gold, uh, mostly it revolves around World War One, but as most things do in the welfare state. And um, the step-by-step ways we can go from where we are now, which is um, plummeting to into a black hole of a, uh, the abyss of debt, to a more reality-based um, system of monetary exchange based on uh, gold, which is, of course, his favorite metal. Though I'd like to ask him the question, uh, why gold and not some other sort of precious metal like palladium, platinum, silver, even copper? And um, how about you, Bob? I understand well, that you've always been an advocate of the gold standard as well. Not ne- no, not necessarily the gold standard as such. It depends on how you define that. I know that Alan Greenspan, of course, um, who was a former chair of the Fed and was also associated with Ayn Rand and the objectivists, always believed uh, that gold and economic freedom are inseparable, which I still do believe. My, my understanding has been that always, you know, as long as you can buy gold and protect your wealth in the purchase of gold, that you have some level of protection, even as long as the government's not making gold illegal to own. Right? As which, they did which back it, in which the it, 70s. Which yeah. they did for a while. Yeah. And, of course, um, Greenspan argued back in the book uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Hello. Ideal. That, oh, there's oh, Keith th- right there. I think we have Keith. Uh, Keith, can you hear us? Uh, very faintly, but I can hear you. Oh, good, because okay. we can hear you, and, and we, we hear you well. We, we're much <laughs> more interested in what you have to say than what we have to say. Um, we've also we, we just sort of introduced you and your um, gold standard um, idea, and wondered whether or not um, you can give us a breakdown. Can you convince me and our listeners of why a gold standard is a good thing? Well, first of all, um, there's the moral issue, right? That um, the government doesn't have the right to force us. To uh, to obey, to be cogs in their wheel, because their little central planning committees have decided that this is better for us, and make make no doubt about it, we are forced 
to um, to play in their in their system, and I think that's completely incompatible with you know freedom in a free society. Forced meaning that it's a fiat currency, and I un I understand that. In one of your videos, the um, irredeemable currency one, you talked about how it how money paper money that is rather uh, currency is not necessarily a true fiat um, currency. Can you explain that? Um, it's been a while since I did the video, but I'm, um, yes, two uh, years I'm old, remembering yeah. <laughs> I probably was making the distinction between something that is literally printed, like monopoly money, versus something that is borrowed and does involve the semi-willing um, participation of the, of, of the market players. Yeah, I think it was the difference between simply printing money as they did in Germany in 1930s and uh, Zimbabwe versus actually having a treasury going out and selling bonds and buying bonds and things of that nature and creating debt. So it, it, it's not a fiat currency in that uh, the government simply prints money willy-nilly but um, bases it on some sort of uh, um, rationale. Could that, could that be the difference? Yeah, well, um, you know, today they have to go to the market to sell their bonds, right? And um, we're we're watching that market degrade as the as the Fed is buying a greater and greater proportion of it. But there still is that um, pomp and circumstance. I'll use that that term um, of having a market. But what I was referring to a minute ago when I say we're forced is um, t two primary ways. One is we have the legal tender laws. Um, now that doesn't force emergent to uh, to price his goods in dollars or to accept dollars, you're perfectly okay to say I'm going to have a restaurant and you're going to pay for my steak dinners using silver. Um, what you're going to find is um, you don't have the pricing power, and there are very few people that will be willing to pay in silver. What legal tender does is it gives the borrower in a in a in a, uh, in a loan transaction it gives the borrower the unilateral right to repay in dollars, which effectively is a put option. So the borrower has a choice at the time of repaying what's cheaper, the gold or the dollars, and the borrower will choose whatever is cheaper. And so, of course, nobody would lend under those circumstances. Um, the other way that they forced us is via the capital gains tax. I don't know how this works in uh, Canada in particular. I'm speaking now about the U.S., but there are other countries as well that, that work this way. Well, let's say you go and pay for that steak dinner using an ounce of silver. Well, the um, IRS, you know, the Internal Revenue Service here in the U.S., uh, forces you to keep a ledger of when you bought that silver, what price you paid, um, and the day that you use it to buy the steak dinner, that consider that to be a sale of silver at the current market price as of that day. If that market price is higher than whatever it was at the day you bought that silver, uh, you owe a capital gains tax on that uh, on that gain. And so, again, the effect of the capital gains tax as well as the legal silver uh, statute is to force people to hoard gold and silver only, but um, not lend it and not uh, really circulate it. Of course. Why would I sell my gold or silver or use it in a transaction if I'm going to be taxed over it when I could simply give you a piece of paper and have no tax on it? That's right. Right. So there's the moral argument. Um, of force, and there's uh, a much more of a, a broader argument economically. Can you get into that a little bit, especially about the history of why we were actually at some point in time in the United States uh, prohibited from actually having gold? Isn't that amazing that um, the people that ran our government thought that that would be a perfectly <laughs> yeah. acceptable use of power, and the people um, let them get away with it? Now, was that FDR? 
Was it I'm sorry? A, the um, pro- prohibition on gold be- where people had to turn it back? Wasn't that under FDR? That was FDR in 1933, mm. one of his first acts. So in 1933, uh, let's rewind the clock and, and put ourselves in that time frame. Um, you had, obviously, the ongoing collapse of the financial system and the banking system, a process that had begun uh, arguably even before 1929, but certainly kicked off at a high gear. In 1929, you had bank runs, you had failures, um, and you had gold in the banking system. Today, gold has nothing to do with the banking system, but at that time, gold was the core asset of the banking system. And so um, when people withdrew their gold, that had two effects. One, it put pressure on the bank's already tenuous um, liquidity, and if a bank could not honor a demand for redemption, then that bank was insolvent um, and, and you know, the bank was closed. Um, the other thing that it did was it forced the bank to sell assets in order to raise um, the liquidity to pay the depositor. You say, okay, give me my 100 ounces of gold. Well, they have to sell something that's worth 100 ounces of gold. Um, now, typically, banks don't own real estate and stocks and those sorts of things. Today, they're probably getting into that a bit. But in those days... Um, and properly, so uh, it's bills and bonds. So by, by forcing the banks to sell bonds, that pushes the bond price down. The interest rate is um, a mathematical inverse of the bond price. That's a rigid, it's like a seesaw or a teeter-totter. That pushes the interest rate up. So you have this pressure of rising interest rates and collapsing bank liquidity and ultimately solvency. And FDR thought that he knew better than the market he could be the central planner and said, well, if we, you know, this is the equivalent of putting a penny in the fuse box when the uh, fuse keeps burning out. Let's just stop all of this by um, not allowing the people to have gold, and then there'll be no, no, no more bank runs, and then we can control the rate of interest, which we know better than the market what it should be. It should be falling, not rising. And so that's what FDR did in 1933. Interesting. You know, but gold still plays a role in our economy today, and that's something we want to get into after this break that we're going to take. And this is a a scene, actually, from a very famous movie, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, filmed in 1946. And I imagine many people share uh, the economic myth that we're about to hear next. It's buried in the greater story of the old-timer named Howard, who's a gold prospector, talking about how the value of gold is determined. Now, this took, the story was set in the 1920s, and at that time, an ounce of gold was around $20 per ounce. And, of course, this is the movie that starred Humphrey Bogart. Let's listen in, and we'll discuss some of the uh, fallacies that we're about to hear, although very dramatic and, and, and fun to listen to, almost a romanticized view of gold prospecting, because I think this is possibly, um, I think this is, perhaps what we might call the labor theory of value being applied to gold, and I don't think it directly applies. We'll be back right after this break. Mexico? Why, sure there is. Not ten days from here, the rail pack train is a mountain waiting for the right guy to come along, discover a treasure, and then tickle it, which lets them have it. Question is, are the right guys? Ah, <laughs> uh, real bonanzas are few and far between. They take a lot of finding. Say, answer me this one, will you? Why is gold worth some 20 bucks an ounce? I don't know, because it's scarce. A thousand men say go searching for gold. After six months, one of them's lucky. One out of the thousand. His find represents not only his own labor, but that of 999 others to boot. That's uh, 6,000 months or 500 years, scrabbling over mountains, going hungry and thirsty. Now, it's a gold, mister, is worth what it is because of the human labor that went into the finding and the getting of it. 
Never thought of it just like that. Well, there's no other explanation, mister. Gold and stuff ain't good for nothing except making jewelry with gold teeth. <laughs> ah, gold's a devilish sort of a thing anyway. You start out, you tell yourself you'll be satisfied with 25,000 handsome smackers worth of it. So help my lord and cross my heart. Fine resolution. <laughs> After months of sweating yourself dizzy and growing short on provisions and finding nothing, you finally come down to 15,000, then 10. Finally, you say, Lord, let me just find $5,000 worth and never ask for anything more the rest of my life. <laughs> $5,000 is a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, here in this joint seems like a lot, but I tell you, if it was to make a real strike, you couldn't be dragged away. Not even the threat of miserable death would keep you from trying to add 10,000 more. 10, you'd want to get 25, 25, you'd want to get 50, 50, 100, like roulette. One more turn, you know, always one more. <laughs> It wouldn't be that way with me. I swear it wouldn't. I take only what I set out to get. Even if there's still a half a million dollars worth lying around waiting to be picked up. I've dug in Alaska and Canada and Colorado. I was with the crowd in the British Honduras where it made my fare back home and almost enough over to cure me of the fever I'd caught. Dug in California and Australia, all over the world practically. <laughs> yeah, I know what gold does to men's souls. You talk as though you struck it rich sometime or other, Pop. How about it? And what are you doing in here, the down and outer? That's the gold. That's what it makes of us. Never knew a prospector yet that died rich. Make one fortune, sure to blow it in trying to find another. I'm no exception to the rule. <laughs> ah, sure, I'm an odd old bone now, but say, don't you guys think the spirit's gone? I'm all set to shoulder pickaxe and a shovel anytime anybody's willing to share expenses. I'd rather go by myself. Going alone is the best way. But you gotta have a stomach for loneliness. Some guys go nutty with it. On the other hand, going to the partner too is dangerous. Murder's always lurking about. Partners accusing each other of all sorts of crimes. <laughs> uh, as long as there's no fine, the noble brotherhood will last. But when the piles of gold begin to grow, that's when the trouble starts. The Latinum's not on the station. I looked everywhere. You've had... I even had my brother scan for it with the internal sensors. Well, at least you have the painting. Oh, forget the painting. I want that Latinum. If you think it'll make you happy, confront. Believe me, it will. This is the break I've been waiting for. And it's been a long time in coming. I want Morton's money. I need Morton's money. I deserve Morton's money. Your move. Beautiful, isn't it? And the way it picks up the light. I wonder who came up with the idea of suspending liquid latinum inside worthless bits of gold. Probably someone who got tired of making change with an eyedropper. Are you going to play or not? That would be difficult, uh, having exchanges with liquid money, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Keith, were you able to hear any of that? Uh, I was able to hear it, yes. Um, any ideas, any con uh, comments on what the old prospector said about uh, how gold is valued? Would you agree or disagree with his assertions there? <laughs> yeah, well, the, you know, the, as you referenced before the break, the idea of the labor theory of value is, is uh, absurd and pretty easy to debunk. You take, uh, you take the old notion of paying a thousand guys to dig a big hole and paying another thousand guys to fill that hole in. Is that patch of empty filled hole is that really worth anything right. um, but it's interesting at, at the very end they were talking about uh, the prospectors were talking about no matter how much gold you have you want more mm -hmm. and that he, he wasn't using economics terminology 
But to put it in economic terminology, what he's talking about is uh, the difference between gold and any other normal commodity. Um, and the term is marginal utility. So marginal utility refers to not the value uh, of something, but rather the value of the next unit of a good in relation to the previous unit. And so to, so to illustrate this, let's say with um, some sort of green, let's say, you're a, let, let's say you're a prospector and you're up in the mountains and um, it's September and you know that you're about to get snowed in, you make your last trip to town uh, and you want to buy some bags of, of cornmeal. The first bag of cornmeal is worth your life. If you don't have that, you're going to die. The second corn bag of cornmeal, maybe uh, you get a little bit above subsistence, just barely, you know, from barely above starvation to being a little comfortable. The third bag of cornmeal allows you to keep a few chickens so you have some meat in your diet. The fourth bag of cornmeal, maybe you're, you're using that as a spare in case one of the others, you know, gets rotten or eaten by insects or whatever. The fifth bag of cornmeal... You use that to uh, feed the birds outside your window and have a little bit of entertainment. And the sixth bag of cornmeal, you, you wouldn't even know what you would do with it. So each additional bag has a declining value relative to the previous. And by the sixth bag, essentially, it has zero value. Um, what those miners were referring to at the very end was that with gold, that relationship is not true. You value the next ounce of gold the same as you value the previous regardless of how many previous ounces you've already already got. If you have zero ounces of gold, you, va- you, you value that next ounce of gold at a certain level. But if you have 10,000 ounces of gold, he said then you want 25,000. You know that- and so you still value it. You put, basically put a constant value on it. Um, and that is what distinguishes gold from all other commodities. And, of course, that's what makes it useful as money, um, it, it useful as a, as, as a measuring stick, a meter stick, as it were, for economic value. Imagine in the real world if you had a meter stick, and as you climb up the side of a hill, your meter stick was getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Well, how could you possibly build a house or build anything else if your standard of value was changing with elevation or with height? Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing is true. How could you build an economy if your standard of value is changing? Which it is all the time. So that's right. In paper money, it is. Yeah. Now, in one of your videos, um, I noticed that you made reference to somebody trying to corner the silver market, and they found it practically impossible given the amount of silver that is out there. Um, do you want to talk about that and what you were just referring to? Yeah. So um, a corollary of the fact that people value the next unit as much as they do the previous is that um, virtually all of the gold ever mined in human history um, and a pretty big, uh, I believe, majority of the silver ever mined in human history, going back many thousands of years, is still in human inventory. It's still in human hands somewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no way to get an accurate count of it. I mean, in gold, the World Gold Council estimates, I think, 170 or 180,000 tons. Um, and I think they're probably off by a factor of two or three. And the reason is people have been hiding this stuff from their governments for thousands of years as well. Oh, come into our humble abode, Mr. Tax Collector, sir. You'll see that we have none of that contraband, expensive, shiny metal over here. And meanwhile, the son is running out the back door with the family gold over to the brother-in-law's house until the inspector is gone, and then the brother-in-law's son and your son are running back out the back door as the inspector is going down the street to your brother-in-law's house. Um, You can't inventory it, but there's vast, vast, vast amounts of it. And so um, around about 19... 
I think they started in 78 or 79. Um, don't quote me on the exact date. The Hunt brothers, Spunker and Herbert Hunt, thought that they knew how much silver there was, and they thought they had enough money to buy it all up. But what they did was they pushed the price up and with all their buying, and the higher the price, the more silver came flooding into the market. And so they were literally buried. They drowned in a deluge of silver that came out. Right. Um, my own mother-in-law was watching that, and she said her price was $50. If she could have sold all the family silver, you know, sterling silver plate and tea services and silver, you know, two or three sets of silverware from the generations handed down and so forth, she would have sold it at 50 um, and she never got the opportunity. So that, um, that really illustrates that the corollary of non-declining marginal utility is vast stocks, uh, hoards uh, are accumulated. So, so Keith, if I, if I understand your theory correct, you believe we should be on a, on a gold standard. Is that correct? I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can barely hear you. Can you say that again? No, you're saying that we should be on a gold standard um, of, yes. uh, of money. And and yes. if that's the case, what does that actually mean? Because I think the big question in a lot of people's minds is we haven't been on a gold standard for a while. We've just watched Obama triple the money supply, um, and we haven't exactly seen what we might see a correlation in prices and in, in the cost of things. And you're saying there's a reason for that. So um, there's a couple of uh, uh, questions implied by that, Yeah, one of which is... There's a very tempting, very popular theory today um, that holds that if you double the money supply, you'll double the price level. Um, it's tempting, it's convenient, it's easy, it seems to make sense. Um, and I, uh, by way of analogy, I'll refer to before the time of Galileo, the medievals, uh, probably the medieval scholastics, although I'm not a historian, believed, you know, sitting in their ivory towers, that if you throw a rock... The rock will fly straight until it runs out of force, and then it will turn a corner and literally fall straight down. They didn't actually go out into the real world and ask some farm boy to throw a rock to see that, no, it's actually an arc. There's no such thing as flying straight, and there's no such thing as turning a corner, certainly. Um, so they didn't observe, and therefore they, they held to this theory. And then Galileo came along and showed them what, you know, what real physics was about, and then that um, went away. As, as a serious idea. Well, the idea that if you double the money supply, you double the price level is wrong. It's economically wrong. It doesn't make any sense. And the more you drill into it, which is probably outside the scope of this show, um, it just doesn't hold, just doesn't hold water. And so um, my, you know, as, as, I, as I look at um, the gold standard movement, um, you know, post-1971, which is when Nixon, President Nixon in the United States pounded home the last nail in the coffin of what was then left of a dying gold standard. Um, in 1971, there's been a continuous gold standard movement since then. And I, I in, in, the, in the spirit of self-reflection, look at it and say, I think that um, a huge and terrible mistake was, was made, and that is to focus on prices. Um, that prices, we're told, are constantly rising under the dollar standard, which is true, if you look at price of almost anything going back to 1913, uh, with the exception of computers and electronics, um, prices are rising pretty relentlessly. That's true, and, and they've pretty much gone all in. The advocates of the gold standard have said, this is it. 
this is the big flaw in the dollar. And if we go to the gold standard, we will have constant prices. The price of uh, a fine toga supposedly in Rome was one ounce of gold, and the price of a fine men's suit in 1912 was one ounce of gold, and supposedly the price of a fine suit today is one ounce of gold. And so we won't have rising prices anymore. And the problem with this is that I, don't, I, th- I think people care about rising prices, but not that much. And so if you're working for wages or if you're retired on a pension, you get something that's called a COLA, cost of living adjustment. Or if you're working for wages, you get a raise. And so um, the, for, if you're in that position, basically the complaint is, well, yeah, you know, the man doesn't give me as much of a raise or as much of a COLA as, as, as he should. It doesn't quite keep up with inflation, um, as it were. But, you know, the idea of, of rising prices, per se, isn't really alarming. We've had prices rising for 100 years. There's no reason why they couldn't keep rising for another 100 years or 1,000 years. Um, and then the group that really ought to be outraged by it is the group of wealthy people because they have the most money saved up. And if the money is losing its value, then they're being robbed. But what are those people doing? They don't have $5 million sitting in a bank account. They have assets. And it's an interesting hallmark of our era that asset prices are rising far, far faster than consumer prices are. So if the cost of, of um, you know living is going up at whatever the official number was, and people quibble about it, the official number for 2013 I think was 1.8%. Um, I'm just going off of memory on that. And, and people quibble and say maybe double that or whatever. But asset prices are going up by 20, 30, 40%, depending on the asset. Now, you're talking so, things about like uh, jewelry and art and houses? Yeah, I mean, artwork and, and classic Ferraris and obviously mm. real estate and, of course, stocks. So the person who's really rich, who theoretically has the most to lose by the devaluation of his wealth, kind of looks at it and says, well, you know, my portfolio is going up. And so, yeah, you're probably right. I should feel a little guilty. You're right, this is a wealth transfer, you know, from, from the masses to me. But you know what? It's pretty sweet. I'd like it to go on for another three years, and I'll make my retirement goals. Um, there's nobody who's really that, you know, upset about rising prices. And so my whole emphasis, um, in a way you could say the mission of the Gold Standard Institute, is to talk about so. Take a step back. Rising prices are the least of the harms done to us by the Federal Reserve and the irredeemable paper dollar. There are much, much, much more serious things, and the mission of the Gold Standard Institute is to bring those other things to light so people can see and understand it and say, oh, that's what's happening. It's not simply the price of groceries is going up. Uh, it's these other things. Uh, we're talking to Keith Weiner, founder of the Gold Standard Institute USA. And Keith, if you want to hold on for uh, just a couple of minutes, we're going to break at the bottom of the hour here. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about things like the Ludwig von Mises Institute and uh, the man on the street view of the Gold Standard. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Take her to a holding cell. Get the rest of them to the infirmary. From now on, you'll be commiserating alone. All your friends are going to prison. For how long? Assault with intent to kill long enough. Then it's mine. All mine. What you are about to hear is the most beautiful sound in the galaxy. 
Oh, that, that can't be. There's, there's no Latin under these bricks. What? Someone's expected. Oh, the Latinum! There's nothing here but worthless gold. And it's all yours. <laughs> no! Here at the Bank of England, Mr. Bond, are the official depository for gold bullion, just as Fort Knox, Kentucky, is for the United States. We know, of course, the amounts we each hold, we know the amounts deposited in other banks, and we can estimate what is being held for industrial purposes. Now, this enables the two governments to establish, respectively, the true value of the dollar and the pound. Consequently, we are vitally concerned with unauthorized leakages. I take it you mean smuggling? Yes. Gold, gentlemen, which can be melted down and recast, it's virtually untraceable, which makes it, uh, unlike diamonds, ideal for smuggling, attracting the biggest and most ingenious criminals. Thank you, Russell. Uh, that'll be all. Thank you, sir. Gentlemen, Mr. Goldfinger has gold bullion on deposit in Zurich, Amsterdam, Caracas, and Hong Kong, worth 20 million pounds. Most of it came from this country. Well, why move it? Because the price of gold varies from country to country. If you buy it here at $30 an ounce, you can sell it in, say, Pakistan at $110 and triple your money. Providing, of course, you have the facilities for melting it down. And has he? Apart from being a legitimate bullion dealer, Mr. Goldfinger poses... Uh, no, that's not quite fair. Is, uh, among his many other interests, a legitimate international jeweller. He's uh, legally entitled to operate uh, modest metallurgical installations. His British one is down in Kent. As yet, we've failed to discover how he transfers his gold overseas. And Lord knows we've tried. If your department can establish that it is done illegally, then the bank can institute proceedings to recover the bulk of his holdings. I think it's time Mr. Goldfinger and I met. Socially, of course. I uh, was hoping you'd say that. We're on the line with Keith Weiner, founder of the Gold uh, Standard Institute. And, Keith, did you happen to hear all that? Uh, most of it. Um, you know, I was looking at the price of gold yesterday in New York, and it was around $1,145.44 an ounce. The price of gold when the treasure of Sierra Madre was filmed in the 1920s when it was set was $20 an ounce. In that 1964 film, when Goldfinger was filmed, they were talking gold prices between $30 and $110 an ounce. Certainly the price increase between the 1920s and the late 60s was nowhere near as dramatic as what has happened since since that time till now. I mean, it, it's just exponential what has happened. And so when you say that you are in favor of a gold standard, do you mean it the way it was meant originally, that a certain fixed, uh, a dollar was actually pegged against a certain fixed amount of gold? Is that what you mean by that? So um, so let's go back to 1792 when um, the brand newly minted, if I can use that term, um, United States... Uh, passed the first coinage act, and at that time, first of all, there wasn't any question that money meant gold and or silver. Yes, uh, there wasn't any question that when you deposited one of those metals in a bank, that you would get the amount that you had deposited back plus whatever the agreed upon interest was, and the bank was putting its entire uh, solvency on the line if it failed to be able to redeem when it was obligated to do so, then the bank was was bust. Um, what the coinage act did at that time. 
was uh, more or less the equivalent of standard, or I shouldn't say more or less, it was the equivalent of standardizing weights and measures. The Coinage Act of 1792 defined the dollar as X number of grains of silver, um, and then they made a huge mistake and they fixed gold to silver, um, which was to cause you know, problems later. Um, what this did was nothing more than standardize. It's sort of like having a computer protocol where you don't have to worry about whether I have a Mac or Windows or a tablet or Android or whatever. My computer can talk to your computer and send an email. So if all the bank accounts are standardized in small, convenient units, then uh, bank deposits become fungible and bank notes become uh, liquid. We can trade them. We don't have to worry that, oh, well, I'm in a metric bank or I'm in an imperial bank and you're in a metric bank or something like that. Uh, oh, I'm using the Spanish standard. You're using the Latin monetary unit, you know, whatever, the Germanic well, standard. It, it, it's interesting because Canada has just signed a deal with China that we won't have to go through the American dollar anymore in our exchanges. And we'll, <laughs> we'll have a direct exchange going back and forth. That This has just happened in the past week or so. Is that related to what you're talking about? Um, I mean, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, just a, in a simpler sense, that... Um, after the coinage act, if two people had bank accounts, then um, there was just a standard unit uh, that made possible transfers and accounting. Um, it would be like if the whole world today had just simply one currency, and we eliminated, um, you know, currency exchange rates and currency volatility. So, so that's all they were doing in 1792. There wasn't a price of gold. I think that's really, really important and underappreciated um, idea. There wasn't a price of gold any more than there is no such thing as a weight of a pound hmm. or a weight of an ounce or a mass of a kilogram. Fascinating. Um, kilogram is mass. It is the unit of measuring mass. The pound is the unit of measuring weight, you know, at least in country, country or countries that still use the imperial system. Um, and that's all it was. There was no price. Um, further, when you went to the bank um, and got your gold back, or, you know, somebody paid you a piece of paper and then you redeem it for gold. It was literally the redemption of a credit, right? The piece of paper is a promise to pay. You go to the bank and say, okay, honor your promise. Mm-hmm. It was literally the redemption of that credit, which extinguishes it. It retires that credit forever until that gold, until and unless that gold is ever redeposited. Today what we have is the credit is not um, gold redeemable. It is irredeemable. And so you don't go to the bank to redeem a bank deposit you buy gold at a price from somebody else, and that person gives you the gold, and you give that person that credit. So the credit is not extinguished. This is now truly a purchase of gold at a price that varies day to day and even minute to minute. You know, within the day, the price keeps changing. Um, and then every time that somebody like Janet Yellen uh, or Mario Draghi gets on the on the TV, you know, the price can can move um, you know with quite a bit of volatility. So today we have a gold price. Before um, 1971, we had a gold redemption rate. And uh, I, I draw a, a, a huge distinction between those two. You know, um, Keith, um, I'm sorry, Bob, you were going to say something. No, no so, so you're saying that gold's purpose is to be able to ultimately extinguish a debt. And without gold, we can't do that. All we're doing is, is trading our debts back and forth to each other. Is that, is that essentially the message? Yeah, so, so picture, you know, it's winter time and we're next door neighbors and I'm baking a cake and I don't have any sugar. So you're my next door neighbor, I knock on the window, you know, hey Bob, do you have a pound of sugar? And you say, okay, sure. So we literally draw up a little sugar credit slip on a napkin from your kitchen 
does Keith owes Bob one pound sugar to be paid by next week? And so um, I bake my cake, everything's fine, and then next week uh, the roads are clear, the snow is gone, I go to the grocery store, I buy an extra sack of sugar, I return, knock on your window, I give you that sack of sugar, we take the napkin that we had drawn up as evidence of the sugar debt, and we tear it to shreds. And now the debt, not only am I out of debt personally, but the debt itself is extinguished. No more sugar is owed. Now, that's the same way that it works with a debt in gold or any tangible commodity. Um, but with a paper dollar, uh, suppose we go to a restaurant together, and then at the end of the evening we owe $100. So I take out a $100 bill, I put it on the table, we walk out. I'm out of the debt loop, but the debt is not, does not go away. Now the Federal Reserve, this is the U.S. $100 uh, bill, um, the U.S. Federal Reserve owes the restaurant the money. The next morning, what does the restaurant do? Well, they're going to deposit it in a bank. Now the Fed owes the bank the money, and the bank owes the restaurant. What is the bank going to do? Well, by business model and by regulatory statute, the bank is going to buy a treasury bond. And now the treasury owes the bank, the bank owes the restaurant. And so all we do is shift the debt around, sort of like moving a lump under the rug. But the debt can't actually go out of existence, um, and so it can only, can only accumulate. Before I came to the show today, Keith, I uh, talked to a colleague about you appearing on the show and saying that you're going to have a, you're advocating a gold standard. And his question was, well, what's wrong with the stuff we got now? It seems to work. Um, everybody accepts it. Um, why change? Uh, is, do you find the resistance out there to an acceptance of a standard that would change the way people understand um, transactions today? Actually, people don't understand transactions today, but there seems to be um, very little traction for a gold standard out in the public. Um, do you find that? Yeah, I mean, there's a combination of, um, I guess what I would call an aggressive apathy, um, that people are militantly indifferent to it, which means sort of somewhat hostile. Hmm. Um, and I think, first of all, people today just accept that the government uh, bosses us around to suit its intents and purposes. They see nothing wrong with the government ordering you to do something. And they conflate the argument that, well, you know, the paper standard is actually better. Well, I would argue that, um, you know, penicillin is better than um, witch doctors, uh, you know, taking a, um, a dead chicken and smoking it and, and swaying it around on the little uh, brazier with the chains to pray you, you know, to health. We don't need laws forcing us to use penicillin when we get an infection because penicillin is better. If the dollar is truly better, then let's repeal the laws that force us to use it and find out um, if people would actually choose that. And I'm pretty confident I know what the answer is. But I think um, the, the broader question is, I don't think people have heard the case for what's wrong with the dollar. They've heard that prices are rising. Prices aren't rising a lot right now. It's nothing like 1980. Prices are rising a little. And if that's the defect with the dollar, then people say, well, um, you know, that's a small price to pay for, you know, the wonder, wonderful modern civilization that the dollar makes possible. And so, of course, they conflate that we have a modern civilization and say, well, it wouldn't have been possible without the dollar. And, and they, make, they make a variety of errors. And the only thing that the gold standard advocates are saying is that prices are rising and we're going to have hyperinflation any day now. Some of them are saying that. Um, and the longer that hyperinflation doesn't come, you know, it's, it's like um, the old Charlie Brown episode the Halloween special with the Great Pumpkin. Mm -hmm. I think it was uh, the character Linus 
you know, promises all the kids if they come with him to the pumpkin patch, the great pumpkin is going to make an appearance. And, you know, at first the kids are all hanging out and they're partying and they're waiting, but by, you know, 9 or 10 p.m., you're getting tired of it, and one by one they, they walk away because the great pumpkin never never materializes. Well, you know, if that's the criticism of the dollar and it hasn't happened, then I can see how people would now harden a little bit and say, well, you're wrong. And... um and that's, and that's where we're at right now. So, yeah, there is, there is an apathy and a resistance. Keith, we're going to take another short break, and when we come back, I'd like to ask you a question about how do we go from a paper standard to a gold standard. So if you want to just stay tuned for a couple of minutes, we'll be right back. Hello? Hello, Felix. Get over here right away. What's up? The girl's dead. Dink? Uh, Masterson, Jill Masterson. And she's covered in paint. Gold paint. Gold? all over. She died of skin suffocation. It's been known to happen to cabaret dancers. It's all right so long as you leave a small bare patch at the base of the spine to allow the skin to breathe. Someone obviously didn't. And I know who. Mr. Powers. I love gold. The look of it, the taste of it, the smell of it, the texture. I love gold so much that I even lost my genitalia in an unfortunate smelting accident. Hence the name, Gold Member. Gentlemen, fall in. Austin, these men were assigned to guard your father. Okay, chaps, chins up, trousers down. I think we may have found a clue. Cool, blimey! All your privates have had their privates painted gold. How bizarre! Imagine gilded tallywhackers, golden wedding tackle, 14 carat trouser snakes. That's enough. Okay. Just about enough, I think. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, now we're, we're with Keith um, Wiener of the. Uh, Gold Standard Institute USA. Keith, um, I've, I've watched you on YouTube, and naturally, of course, you're against um, John Maynard Keynes, against, um, but I've also heard you speak out uh, marginally against uh, von Mises and against Milton Friedman. Do you find that your position is so unique that you're facing an uphill battle, not only from the left, but also in some quarters of the right? Um, first of all, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I'm against Mises. I heard I you mention one thing about him. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, I thought. I thought I heard you say something uh, that that Mises got something wrong in one of your uh, your videos about. That. Yeah, I, I think. I think he made um, a mistake, but I. I I'm mm -hmm. certainly a big fan of his. Oh yes. Um, I, I, I certainly <laughs> regard Milton Friedman as um, as somebody who's done a lot of damage hmm. because though when when. When people talk about the crisis of 2008, they talk about you know, the crisis of capitalism, the crisis of the free market. And I think more than any one single person, Friedman gets the credit for convincing people that you can have central planning of money and that what you have on top of that can be called a free market. And then when the central planning of money fails, then people convince the free market failed. Um, and I think, I think he did a lot of damage with that. Friedman was, of course, against the gold standard and was for having 
and irredeemable paper money that were forced to use by legal tender law, that he felt that he could have the right magic formula for um, how much it should be debased in order to have whatever wonderful economic effects that supposedly occur when you have the government um, you know, debasing the, the money. Sure, and I don't, I don't think Milton Friedman ever got the moral argument of capitalism either. No, he was, he was very sort of utilitarian about it. Mm-hmm. How do we go from our paper standard to uh, what you're advocating, Keith? I mean, I, I think, yeah, I can answer that on two levels. You know, what would have to happen culturally, and then what's the mechanics, which I think is a little more technical and maybe less interesting. I think the big thing is if enough people get upset enough, right, so I, I really look at um, how slavery came about, to, or the end to slavery came about in this country. I don't think Canada had slaves. Did you? We we did, but mm-hmm. we abolished it uh, long before the United States did. With as as did the Commonwealth countries. Right. Okay. So that was what late 18th century. Yeah, it was uh, a long time before the Americans did. I'm, I'm showing there's some gaps in my my knowledge of history. Um, but in this country, obviously, it was very famously the Civil War. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mid 19th century, um, and then for a brief while, we entertained alcohol prohibition, which I don't think the Canadians ever. Um, wallowed in, um, and then we abolished the Jim Crow laws in the Deep South in the United States, where by law, you know, black people were treated as second-class citizens. Um, and today, actually, uh, it's interesting, you know, there were some referendums that passed in our election yesterday. It looks like we may be on the path to um, ending uh, drug prohibition. Uh, a little too early to tell, and I'm not a political pundit. But in all of these cases, there's the one common element that if enough people get angry enough, then there's change, and until then, they don't. Um, in every one of those cases, I think there was both moralizing supporters. I won't say moral, because they were evil, but there were people that gave it a, a veneer of pseudo-morality, justifying in the name of religion or tradition or social order, or whatever it was, why we had to have these regimes. And, of course, there were plenty of, of people that were profiteering on having each of these regimes, um, and yet it was overcome when enough people saw that it was morally unconscionable, uh, they became angry, then uh, these regimes ended uh, fairly quickly. Uh, obviously, I mean, the Civil War being a little bit of an exception to some of the other examples I'm talking about. And I think, and I think that's really what it comes down to with the gold standard. When people see, first of all, that the structure of the dollar is wreaking on them, which is not about rising prices, and we haven't talked about what that destruction is yet. Um, and when people see that they're forced to be victims of this, then um, then they're going to they're going to stand up and they're going to scream bloody murder uh, at this. And I, I think the change should be, um, you know, relatively mechanical. You know, after that, once people say, "Okay, we need to change," well, and to your question earlier, right now most people are not of that belief. Well, not, not to put you on the spot in the last few minutes that we have, if prices aren't what scare people, what is the thing about, about um, you know, fiat money that we should be concerned with? What is the danger? What is the destruction? So, so I'll put it this way. When, when people are left free, the first of all, they don't destroy their capital. They're always looking to build and develop and accumulate and save more. The monetary system, they've come up with ways of creating what I call perverse, or not, it's not my term, but perverse incentives. Capital destruction is enormously profitable today. We are literally destroying 
and, and making a profit doing it, um, the capital on which our civilization is based. Um, and so the, the, there's, there's a number of mechanisms for this, but one of which is the falling rate of interest. People, people think it's good to have a bull market in bonds. And what they don't realize is that the bond is a zero-sum game between the bond issuer and the bond speculator. I say speculator because nobody buys the bond just to clip the coupon. The interest rate today is paltry. They buy it in, in hopes for a capital gain. That capital gain comes at the expense of the bond issuer. So we're literally uh, hoovering out the capital of bond issuers, which is you know most businesses and certainly all corporations and governments, uh, borrow money, and then the, the interest rate falls, which means the bond price buys, and we're giving their wealth away to somebody else in the form of their income. This is enormously destructive. So I think we actually need some, uh, well, as you were saying with the Jim Crow laws and slavery and things like that, you could, it was palpable. You could see a black man being hanged as a slave, but we don't see uh, you know, the, the visual evidence um, that is that is going to get people riled up today because we have a paper currency. You have people losing their their value and their wealth gradually, perhaps 2% a year or something, and they, they say, well, that, that that's acceptable. You know, I'll try to find an, a way around that. So if we're going to be looking for victims, who are the victims that we want to be able to say, look, this is because of the paper currency that we have? First of all, anybody trying to save for retirement... How are you supposed to save for retirement at zero interest? I mean, apart from the question of what's the value of the money as the currency being debauched, uh, at zero interest, you can't really save. And so that, that gives you a really bitter choice, which is either become a speculator and pile into whatever bubble you think is, is inflating, or to sit there and try to um, deposit out of your paycheck and hope that that'll add up to retirement at the end of the day. And of course, it can't and it won't. Uh, the other victim is um, the unemployed worker. This process of capital destruction, that's the reason why we can't create any jobs in this economy anymore. Now, Canada's a little bit different. I think Canada's in a different place in the, um, in the boom-bust cycle versus the United States. But the United States has destroyed a net, something like 8.5 million jobs since the peak in um, you know, 2000, you know, 2000 or 2001. We can't, we can't create any jobs anymore because the prerequisite to creating jobs is investment, and the prerequisite to investment is savings, and we've just completely punished and, and basically obliterated savings in the saver. So, so we have this you know, jobless situation, and they can tinker with how they measure and how they quote unemployment. Um, and, you know, for a more accurate picture, take a look at the labor force participation rate, and you see that it's never been lower going back to I believe the Gerald Ford administration. I believe we even passed Carter at this point. Mm. Um, so those are two groups of people that are getting uh, very badly hurt by this: savers and um, and wage earners. Well, that's certainly that, that's much clearer to me in my mind what you've just described there in terms of this actually destroying our capital of the future. That's actually what Ayn Rand <laughs> argued about from day one that that was what we were doing by going to free right. money. Um, Keith, we've got to wind it up. I can't believe how quickly the hour has gone. Robert, did you have to? Want a well, I just other? wondered whether um, whether you had a website, Pete, uh, Keith, that people can go to and um, learn more about uh, the gold standard. Goldstandardinstitute.org. So um, people go to goldstandardinstitute.org, learn more about the gold standard and why we are uh, going down this black hole 
um, that the paper currency is um, inevitably leading us to, and it is inevitable um, at some point in time. I think you mentioned that it's not going to be back to the uh, Depression area. It's going to be back to uh, AD 450 or something in the, <laughs> the burning of Rome. It's going to be quite awful unless we uh, start to learn about what money is and the gold standard and why it can uh, save us. Keith Wiener, Gold Standard Institute, thank you very much for um, appearing on our show today. Very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And we've got to go for another week. And as we do, we hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We will. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Of course, gold is not my best color. Perhaps emerald green would look better. Try, try gold. It'll, it'll look nice on you. Gold is not my color. It looks great. It really does. Now, now, uh, uh, pop yourself into this size. Yes, Master. Okay. Like this, Master? Yeah. If Wingate catches a glimpse of you, he'll think you're the trophy again. Is this what you saw, Les? Where'd you, where'd you get the trophy? It's Les's mission souvenir. It says Commander Leslie Wingate, Lunar Module Pilot. That is not what I saw. The creature I saw was about was about six inches long, had blonde hair, and was wearing a black dress. I didn't know they gave out trophies. Why, why, why didn't I get a trophy? Les, this is six inches long, and in the dark, you can't tell the difference between gold and blonde. You think you'll buy it? I don't know. How much asking? <laughs>